I'm sure that all Christians have some friend or family member who does not believe in God. And maybe feeling burdened for their soul, you finally work up enough courage to talk to them and share the Lord with them. But they have endless excuses for not believing. Like, how can I believe in a God I can't see? Where is God? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence for God? Where are the miracles of the Bible? No one's ever seen them. And speaking of the Bible, why should I believe this old book written by men? It was just manufactured by the church to keep power and control. I'm not interested in religion. Even if there is a God, I'm a good person. I'll take my chances. Now, hearing all this, you might give a solid answer to each objection. But each time you take away one of their excuses for not believing, another one rises to take its place. You're not being mean or contentious. It's just they're settled in their unbelief, and they just want to get you off their back. And eventually it works. You, you leave them alone. You let them be. But now imagine the same interaction taking place only on the day of judgment. And it's not an unbeliever speaking with you, but speaking with God. And all of a sudden, there are many reasons for not believing turn into a frantic defense as they realize they're facing judgment. Like, God, I would have believed, but you, you didn't give me any reason or any proof, any evidence. I would have followed you, but science made it seem like miracles were impossible or the, the Bible was unreasonable. How do you think that will go? I mean, when, when talking to you, all these excuses worked. You, you left them alone. They, they got you off their back. And that's because you are not their judge. But God is, and all of these excuses will fall flat. There's not a single reason for unbelief that will stand on the day of judgment. God's judgment will be just, and it will sweep away all who refused to believe. I'll tell you what, though. God's judgment will be even greater for those who went to church their whole lives, but still refused to believe. There will be very many religious people on Judgment Day who were in reality unbelieving, unrepentant, self-deceived, who lived a double life and clung to self as Lord. And what excuse will they give? I didn't know better. They heard a thousand sermons, countless gospel presentations, but the word never penetrated their hardened heart. None of their excuses will fly and they'll face a vastly greater judgment than even the worst atheist. All this may sound pretty serious, pretty harsh. I only say this because this is what the Lord Jesus says in our passage this morning, and it presents a warning we just, we need to face, we need to heed, we need to hear. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're back in Matthew 11 this morning, and if you can't already tell, we just have a serious, heavy passage warning of God's judgment. But look, this comes from the Lord Jesus himself, it's part of inspired scripture, which means it's, it's profitable for us to consider. We, we can't just skip the hard stuff. We go through the Bible verse by verse. For that reason, we face these hard warning passages of judgment. They're meant for us to heed and hear, take to heart, and even warn others. So we're going to do so. Our text is Matthew 11, verses 16 through 24, as we're just making our way through Matthew. In Matthew 11 and 12, these, these two chapters, we're starting to learn about the wrong responses to the ministry of Jesus. It, this begins with John the Baptist, who just for a brief moment entertained some doubt. Like, is Jesus really the Messiah? He says back in verse 3, are you the expected one? Now, that's not a response of outright rejection. It's just that Jesus was not living up to his messianic expectations, so he, he questioned 
And still, though, John took his uncertainty to the Lord in faith, submitting to him. The Lord responded tenderly, building him up, rebuilding his faith. There's much to be learned from John's example. We did that back in verses 1 through 6. Now, after that, verses 7 through 15, Jesus turns to the crowd. He starts talking to them about John the Baptist. Jesus is seeking to vindicate John and his testimony. John's moment of doubt might cast some shade on the the reputation and the testimony of John. That would be unfortunate because John really was a true prophet, a man of God. Everything he said about the Messiah was true. John's character and mission were worth upholding. So in verses 7 through 15, Jesus testifies John was the greatest man who ever lived, being the prophet and forerunner to the Messiah. But there's another reason Jesus may have wanted to testify concerning John. We we learn that public opinion was starting to shift about Jesus and John. These religious leaders who held so much sway over the people, they were starting to turn and oppose Jesus and John. Now, this passage, Matthew 11, has a parallel in Luke chapter 7. It's all the same thing, but only Luke tells us after Jesus testifies of John, he tells us how the people responded to what Jesus just said. And listen to this, Luke 7, 29 through 30. It says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You know, the people for now, they're, they're still friendly to Jesus and John, but these religious leaders have so much influence. And as they begin to turn on John and Jesus, it's not going to be long before the people fall in line. I think this helps explain what comes next. Jesus was speaking to the crowd. Now, starting in verse 16, he starts speaking about the crowd. He knows the hearts of all men. After all this time, all these miracles that these people have witnessed, how many were were truly believing in him? And how many had truly heeded the message of John? The answer is not many. Instead, many were starting to criticize John and criticize Jesus, being impossible to please, and that's because in reality, they, they still were just serving self. They rejected God and his purposes. And so all that waits for them is judgment. So what happens when you reject the only Savior? But the same goes for all who do not heed the message of John and Jesus, which in a word was repent. Just repent. Like what come, comes next is it's a heavier passage, but it, it's a word in Scripture that all of us need to hear. Text is Matthew eleven sixteen through 24. It's long. We're going to read it as we go. But we find here two gravely wrong responses to Jesus and the dire warning that accompanies them. Two gravely wrong responses to Jesus and the dire warning that accompanies them. The first is the response of criticism. The response of criticism. Let's start in verse 16. We'll make our way through. After testifying of John, Jesus says, verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? As he moves on, he has something to say about this generation. Generation is a broad term. It speaks of the state of society in a given age or time. And Jesus is using it to refer to the, the state of Israel at the time. He definitely has at the forefront of his mind the leaders of Israel, 
as the, the parallel in Luke, 11, or Luke 7 makes clear. This, this general principle holds true, that as the leadership goes, so goes the nation. The, the people are initially favorable to John and Jesus, but I mean, the, the leadership, the spiritual leadership, have such a chokehold over the people that pretty soon it will be like the whole generation has rejected Jesus. Whenever Jesus speaks about this generation, he does not have good things to say. Matthew 12, 39, coming up soon, he will call it an evil and adulterous generation. And later in Matthew 17, 17, he will call it an unbelieving and perverted generation. And so here, what does he have to say about this generation? He's going to make a comparison. So verse 16, he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Here Jesus pictures a little scene of children sitting in the agora, is the word, or the marketplace. This is like the ancient version of town hall or main street, of a little town where all the commerce and social interaction took place, and the adults are off doing business, the kids are left to play. And back when I was in college, I met all these guys from like these random, small, middle-of-nowhere towns who had come to college there. And one guy was from Blythe, California, like by, out in the desert, middle of nowhere. He said there was like literally nothing to do growing up. And as kids, they had to be extremely inventive to do anything fun. It seems like that's what these kids were doing that Jesus imagines in this little story. They're playing games. And the first game they're playing is wedding. Right, you have one group of children playing the flute, maybe piping an imaginary instrument, and they expect this second group of kids to dance. Culturally, what's behind this is, is a wedding scene. A flute was like the instrument for, for merriment or celebration. Like weddings today, music is played, people dance. But in this scene, there's a problem that this second group of kids, they don't want to play. They're not in the mood. They don't want to play that game. The first group of kids plays this mock flute, and the others refuse to dance. All right, well, let's try a different game. The kids reason, like, how about we play funeral? (laughs) That seems to be what the second game was about. This is the first group of kids then plays a dirge or sings a dirge. This game sounds a bit more morose. And I distinctly remember, I think it was like the third grade, all the girls would get together and, and do like these mock pretend weddings and rope some poor boy in to be the groom. But I can't say I ever remember kids playing mock funeral. But you've got to remember, in the ancient world, death was everywhere, right? The mortality rate was high. Life expectancy was low. Funerals were just commonplace. Kids turned it into a game. And so the first group of kids, though, they switch it up, and it says they start singing a dirge. Now, it's literally just a verb for lamenting. And in the ancient Jewish funeral, they were not quiet, somber affairs. They were loud. People were weeping and wailing. They're they're very loud events. And that's what these kids were probably imitating. They're they're wailing, they're weeping. They expect now the other group of kids to pretend and mourn. But again, there's a problem. The second group of kids still doesn't want to play. We sang a dirge, it says, and you did not mourn. These other kids, they're impossible to please. Like they're perpetually dissatisfied. They refuse to respond rightly to the other children. And this is the point Jesus is making with this generation, this point of comparison. It's like no matter how God tries to reach them, 
They're not satisfied. They can't be pleased. Now, he's going to connect the dots for us. Like, what, what do you mean by this? Verse 18, he goes on. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John being John the Baptist, he came neither eating or drinking. Another way of saying he was austere, he was an ascetic. I mean, like Elijah of old, he lived in the desert. He wore a garment of camel skin. His diet was locusts and wild honey. Meaning you're not going to find John rubbing shoulders with the elite at a dinner party. John kept a Nazarite vow since birth, which meant he never even drank alcohol ever. John did not teach asceticism, nor does scripture, but but John, the self-denial was his personal commitment that he might be just entirely devoted to the Lord and his ministry as prophet. Like Phineas of old, like zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. And with that same zeal, he preached repentance to Israel. John drew like this sharp line in the sand. There's two sides. You had better repent and return to God because the other side will face judgment. And now there were some people who humbled themselves before John. They accepted his message. They were baptized. But even still, there are many people who recoil at the zeal of others, those who are zealous for the Lord. They don't like that. They see them sacrificing so much to serve the Lord, and it puts them off because I think they know deep down that they're not willing to sacrifice to serve the Lord. They're happy with cultural Christianity, but that zealous person over there who's like, He's like, real? He risks exposing them as phony. And that certainly happened with John and these religious leaders. They, they refused John's message of repentance. Like, well, what did they have to repent of? They're not, they're not sinners like the people. But they just they couldn't handle John's zeal. He was the real deal. He didn't fear them at all. Everybody feared them and, and walked on eggshells around them. John didn't fear them at all. He feared God. And that's why he still... Rebuke them, calling out their hypocrisy. Matthew 3, 7, they come to him. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Everything about John threatened to expose them as false. And so they turned on him. And they had no choice but to discredit his message, his ministry. And they did that first through criticism. They buried him under criticism. Here it says that they said he has a demon which we know is a, a ridiculous thing to say that John the Baptist had a demon, but that he was a madman. We'll find in the next chapter, they're going to pretty soon start saying the same thing about Jesus. He's not spirit-filled, but Satan-filled. You know, in Christ's little analogy here, John may be likened to these children who played a dirge. He had a serious, somber ministry and message, but the religious leaders and eventually the people will prove unwilling to mourn over their sins, and listen to him. They were dissatisfied with his calling, and so they silenced him with criticism. Now, what about God's other messenger? Verse 19, Jesus goes on. He says next, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If John can be likened to these children playing a dirge. Jesus can be likened to these children playing the flute. He's the bridegroom. His coming is an occasion of joy. This is why we learned back in Matthew 9, Jesus and his disciples, they don't fast. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, which simply means he was not an aesthetic, 
or ascetic rather. He did not abstain from all alcohol, and we find him at a dinner banquet. Back in Matthew 9, after Matthew's own conversion, being a tax collector, he hosts this dinner banquet, invites all of his friends who are fellow outcast tax collectors, and Jesus, being a respected rabbi, attends and draws the outrage of the Pharisees. How could any respected rabbi be caught associating with sinners and tax collectors? Well, it's true that Jesus did associate with sinners, but he never conformed to their ways. He was not a drunkard or a glutton. He was always holy, but Jesus wanted to associate with sinners. That's, that's who he came to save. He came to seek and save that which was lost, and the humble, the meek, the broken would always find his reception. He came to extend God's mercy and grace to those who knew they were sinners. But once again, these religious leaders could not accept this type of ministry. They were still not satisfied. John was too serious, too strict. Jesus, too gracious, too accepting. To them, it was guilty by association. Sinners, and especially tax collectors that allied with Rome, they might as well already be in hell. That there's no hope for them in the eyes of these leaders for any rabbi or just serious Jew to associate with them. And that's guilty by association. You are just as defiled as they are. The religious leaders and many of the people were completely blinded by their self-righteousness. They, they did not believe they were sinners. They did not need a savior. And so they too stumbled over Jesus' call for repentance. Because remember, he preached the same thing as John. Repent. But to them, like, why do they need God's grace? They're sons of Abraham. They keep the law. And so they had to delegitimize the ministry of Jesus because he opposed them more than John did. As with John, they did the same thing. They started to try and bury Jesus under criticism. Eventually, it's not going to work. They're going to be forced to kill him, but it starts with criticism. They sought to assassinate his character in the eyes of the people. And so they're spreading this, this claim. This Jesus guy, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a sinner. But we find what Christ is saying is that altogether this generation will neither repent and mourn over their sins with John, nor believe and rejoice over forgiveness with Jesus. They're not satisfied either way. They're unwilling to submit to God's way. They cling to their own way, which turns out to be the way of destruction. And overall, their response to Jesus and John, it, it's one of unbelief, but we find here it's, it's veiled behind criticism. Their criticism is just a, a covering for their unbelief. John, that guy John, he's, he's got a demon. Jesus, this teacher, he's a drunkard, a glutton, a, ta- a sinner. Now, I should go without saying, this is the wrong response to the ministry of John and Jesus. It's a response of unbelief veiled behind criticism. But this still happens all the time. Do you know people that that still express their rejection of the Lord via criticism? And even when you answer those criticisms, they just pull another one out of the hat. They'll, They'll take any reason, any excuse to not believe, to not follow the Lord. Any reason is good enough. Maybe you've heard some people say, like, Christianity is just full of hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. They'll say, don't do this or that. And then they do it. And then to this, you might respond, like, look, the claim of Christianity has never been that when someone comes to Christ, they're instantly made 
sinless in practice. We have a deeply fallen sin nature. It's why we need Jesus. And not everyone who takes the title Christian is actually born again. They don't really represent the faith. And then what about all those countless Christians who have witnessed transformed lives? They were once deeply wicked, corrupt, even criminal, but coming to Christ brought them total transformation. Their lives are now characterized by peace and love, doing good to others. What about those people? Isn't that the message of Christianity? This Jesus came to die in our place on the cross precisely because we are a bunch of sinners who need God's grace. And by faith in him only are we forgiven. Thereafter, we aim to be progressively sanctified, to be made more holy like our Lord is holy. It's like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's good news. But even that message gets criticized. And one side might say, Christianity is so judgmental. Like, what, what kind of God is this? You say God is love, but what, he's sending people to hell because they're homosexual or they, they get drunk or they commit adultery? And you Christians are so intolerant too. You're always acting like you're right and everyone else is wrong. Of course, when people criticize Christians for acting like they're right and everyone else is wrong, they themselves are acting like they're right and Christians are wrong. Still, others like the Pharisees might say, this whole message is offensive, this message of grace they're not sinners. They don't do these things. They're not murderers or adulterers or thieves. They're good people. It's offensive to suggest they need saving. What kind of God would reject them? They're good people. Like the reasons are endless. Like a game of whack-a-mole, you could, you could put them down, another one just comes up, an excuse not to believe. But what you need to realize, just like the Jews in Christ's day, that the, those who are the perpetual critic None of these criticisms are their real reason for not believing. It's just something to, to, to put away their conscience. But behind all these reasons is just unbelief, and behind that is self-will. They just don't want to bend the knee to Jesus as Lord. Their Lord, over their own lives, no God is going to tell them what to do or how to live. They're sovereign. If some nagging Christian happens to convict them, some truth, that they're going to put that down. They will silence and discredit them with criticism, oftentimes, much like these Jews did to John and Jesus. What that means for us is that we will often be the target of criticism because we now bear the name of Christ. We're called Christians. We are to represent him to the world. And so doing so, we will often bear his reproach. But as we are treated like the Lord, I hope we also respond like the Lord, which is what? 1 Peter 2.23 says that while being reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We don't fight fire with fire. We're not going to slander or criticize anyone back. We're just going to continue to speak the truth in love, preach the gospel with prayer, and trust God to judge rightly in the end. And that's essentially the sentiment Jesus captures at the end of verse 19. He finishes and says, 
Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That the wisdom of God represented by the ministry of John and Jesus, it will be proven right in the end. The critics, what did they say? John, he's just got a demon. Jesus is a drunk, he's a sinner. Was that true? Of course that wasn't true. That was not reality. Reality was John is a prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. Those who heed their message, they're not unloving, raving lunatics. They're sinners saved by grace, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, proving the Lord's way is right. And the Lord's way will be proven right in the end. The Lord and his way and his people will be vindicated in the end. And as for Jesus himself, we see already one such example of his vindication. Look at, look at their slander. One of their slanders was, he's a friend of sinners. That slander has turned into one of his greatest slogans, one of his best attributes, you might say, or titles. That sinners who humbly come before Christ can find in him, not a judge of sinners, but a friend of sinners, if they repent. But let the warning stand, though, which, which applies to many frequent church attenders, but they withhold their hearts from God. Don't silence the truth and the conviction you hear behind a veil of criticism. Beware this wrong response of criticism. Secondly, now beware the response of unrepentance. Number two, the response of unrepentance. You know, in this next section, now verses 20 through 24, Jesus He's still overall calling out the response of unbelief at the core of it. But whereas before the unbelief presented as criticism, now unbelief presents as unrepentance. And let's see what he says. He continues, verse 20. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. It says Jesus here denounces a word for rebuke, to chide, to reproach. This is Jesus being judgmental. And before you criticize him, you have to realize he gets to do that. It is his prerogative. He's the Lord, the one who made this world. We live in his world. He gets to judge it. And don't forget John 5.22, where he said, the Father has handed all judgment to the Son. He is Savior. He is also judge. And here Jesus, as judge, is pronouncing judgment. The objects of his judgment in this passage are cities, the cities in which most of his miracles were performed. Obviously, though, it's not talking about the the physical locations as if Jesus is really angry against brick and mortar. Now he's using a figure of speech known as metonymy where the cities just stand in place of the people who inhabit them. And so it's the people of these cities who are being denounced. Why? Well, he says, because they did not repent. What makes this even worse is that these were the cities in which most of his miracles were performed. They saw the proofs that he was the divine Messiah. The testimony, just like he said back in verse 5, as he says to John, that the blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. How could you take offense at that? Who would take offense at that? But most Jews in the end did. They're happy to be healed. 
were less happy to deny self and follow Jesus as Lord. They would not repent. And so what's left for the unrepentant? Jesus is the only door of salvation. They found the door. They slammed it shut. What's left for them? It's only judgment. And worse yet, he teaches here, their judgment will be far more severe because they received far greater testimony of the truth. So he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Chorazin is a city mentioned nowhere else in Matthew. We know almost nothing about it. Located about two miles north of Capernaum. It would soon pass away from history's memory. The fact that Jesus mentions it here, though, shows it was at the time a prominent city, one he visited often, which just goes to show you how little we actually know about like the daily life of Jesus for these three years. He said he performed most of his miracles in these cities. We don't know of any from Chorazin. We know a little bit more about Bethsaida. It's a city about four miles east of Capernaum. These, these all, all three cities dot the upper shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was the original home of Peter, Andrew, and Philip before they relocated to Capernaum. And it was also in Bethsaida that Jesus healed a blind man. Just knowing the vast number of miracles Jesus performed in this region, we get the impression that the people of these cities, they had all probably like personally witnessed Jesus perform some miracle, or at the very least, they heard undeniable testimony that he did. And so they saw all the proofs, all the signs that people say they desperately want to see. What was their response? Well, it wasn't repentance. And speaking of Bethsaida, did you know that's where Jesus fed the 5,000? Bethsaida has a, a big plain with lots of green grass that happened in the spring, and it was there the crowd assembled. He took the five loaves, two fish, and multiplied them. Now, after that miracle, the crowd, they, they kept following Jesus, but he knew they weren't really following him. They just wanted more free bread. In John 6, he confronts the crowd for not believing in him. And the crowd has the audacity to say this back to Jesus. John 6, 30. They said to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? And they all knew the miracle that just happened. They all just witnessed him take five loaves, two fish, and feed a multitude. As Jesus is the bread of life, those who believe in him will never hunger. But the people thereafter, they, just, they grumble and they refuse to accept the claims of Jesus. They choked on his teaching. And once they realized the free meal was over, they left. And many of those who even called themselves disciples, it says they stopped following him. This is often how it went. There's this initial excitement around the miracles of Jesus, but not true lasting repentance. And this is why Jesus pronounces woe on these cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe is a term of judgment. It's frequent on the lips of the Old Testament prophets. God is the judge of the wicked, and they were announcing his judgment as if it was already rendered. And Jesus, he's doing the same thing. He adds in verse 21, For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. When you know a thing or two about these cities, you realize this is a shocking statement. Tyre and Sidon, they're a familiar pair of Gentile cities, 30, 40 miles northwest of Galilee. 
They're part of the promised land, but they were never occupied by the Jews. They were always Gentile territories, pagan strongholds. And being rich seaports, they were centers of greed and immorality, like Las Vegas on the coast. And these cities were so wicked, they themselves were the subject of their own pronouncements of woe by the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. In fact, that the king of Tyre was so wicked that in Ezekiel 28, he's prophetically used to figure at the rise and fall of Satan. You get the picture, though. Tyre and Sidon to the Jews, they, these cities epitomized evil. These were heathen, pagan Gentiles consigned to hell. With that in mind, what Jesus says is stunning, that, that these godless pagan Gentiles would have sooner repented at the miracles of Jesus than the Jews. In any way you elevate the Gentiles above the Jews was incredibly offensive to the Jews, but wasn't this true? You think back to the preaching of Jonah. Did not Nineveh repent? But Jerusalem never repented. It appears that the self-righteousness of the Jews blinded them to their sin, whereas these heathen Gentiles would have gotten the point sooner. And as a result, verse 22, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, look, Jesus never says Tyre and Sidon are off the hook. All those who lived in those cities and persisted in their own unbelief and rebellion against the one true God, they, they will be judged. But the point is, those who came closer to Jesus and even witnessed his miracles will, re- will receive a far greater judgment. And what that more severe judgment looks like is not revealed in Scripture. In Dante's Inferno, he postulated these nine circles of hell, each with a greater degree of torment. We don't know. We don't know what greater or lesser punishment looks like for those who are unredeemed. But how about this? How about you don't find out? (laughs) Repent. But this is one of the main passages teaching that there are degrees of punishment in hell. In every single passage of judgment in the Bible, the lost are always judged for what? For their deeds, for what they've done. Look at the final great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. It says, The books were opened, and the dead, uh, the dead were judged for the things which were written in the books. Then it says, According to their deeds. Every sinful thought, word, deed is accounted for. Everyone has a debt they can't pay. Some more than others. And we learn here what what really multiplies that debt is knowledge. Those people who never saw the miracles of Jesus, never heard the gospel, they're not off the hook. All are without excuse. But God will not hold people accountable to light they never received. Gentiles are guilty for violating the law of God written on their hearts and the knowledge of God he placed in their hearts. But understand the point Jesus is making here. He's talking about those who, who've received the light. They, they received the Christ. They've heard the gospel. Even these who saw most of his miracles, they will receive a vastly greater judgment. They have no excuse. Really no excuse. God's judgment is commensurate with the level of light or revelation a person received. Jesus affirms this in a parable. I'll just read for you Luke 12, 47, 48. He says at the end that, that the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it 
and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. This, this would have been shocking to the Jews, though, because they thought they would have nothing to do with this, this day of judgment. That's not for them. They're Jews. And Jesus goes on, though, to add that day will be worse for them. He adds a third city in parallel, just for emphasis now, to finish this off. Verse 23. He adds, and you, Capernaum, will, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. This is even more shocking with the contrast. Jesus now calls out Capernaum, and you might recall Capernaum being just the the focal point of Christ's Galilean ministry. After he was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, he makes his new home base of ministry in Capernaum, where Peter lived. This is a large fishing town on the northern shore of Galilee, and it was the location of the most recorded miracles of Jesus, at least the recorded ones. And one time, Mark 133 says, the whole town gathered at the door of where Jesus was staying, looking for healing, and he effectively just wiped the town out of disease and demons, as if they all knew, everybody in Capernaum knew. But how did they respond? Well, with ingratitude and unrepentance. They were very happy to have Christ as doctor, but they did not want him as Lord. And so Jesus asks, will they be exalted to heaven? By no means. He says they will descend to Hades, which here is a very clear reference to hell. It's in direct contrast to heaven. But there's a very interesting allusion here. Now, there are two key prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the rise and fall of Satan. I already mentioned the first, Ezekiel 28, which speaks of the devil who is inspiring the king of Tyre. The other is in Isaiah 14, which speaks of the devil inspiring the king of Babylon. Babylon was another city that epitomized evil and rebellion to the Jews. Babylon was proud and puffed up, just like its king. And likely speaking of Satan who inspired that king, that's where he gets the label Morning Star or Lucifer, And here is his greatest desire, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 15. Speaking of this figure, likely speaking of the devil behind the king of Babylon, it says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. And it seems like Jesus is alluding to that verse right here. He's likening Capernaum to the harlot Babylon. And condemns it for its pride, just like the king of Babylon. And is this not what's behind all rebellion against God? This this vain glory, the desire to dethrone God, to be God, to be the master of your own domain, to take his place. That is what led Satan in his first rebellion. That has what has been, uh, that's what led mankind in rebellion ever since. Humanity is now enslaved in sin. And people will not willingly give up that rebellion. They will not repent and return to God. They maintain that same desire to be exalted, to rule over the throne of their heart. But those who persist in that, like the devil, like those in Capernaum, as Jesus said, they'll only be thrust down to hell. And again, though, their judgment will be worse, speaking of Capernaum, 
since these people witnessed most of the miracles the Messiah performed. Now here Jesus adds another comparison, though. Directly, he compares them to Sodom. If those in Sodom witnessed such miracles, they would have repented long ago. Like this is another city that is an archetype of pagan immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah became a byword of God's wrath, both cities being annihilated for their sexual depravity and immorality. But even they, Jesus says, even they would have repented if they witnessed the Messiah and his miracles. Do you realize just what this is saying about the level of hardness of heart and unbelief among the Jews? Like their, their, their hardness was next level, which is why their judgment is next level. Verse 24, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And we learn in this passage, and one of the primary purposes of the miracles of Jesus, his miracles were signs. They were his divine calling card, his divine credentials, proving he was the God-man. And as such, what is the main response witnessing his miracles should elicit. Even today, you witness a miracle, what should the response be? The intended response from God. Your response should be to repent. Now back to verse 20. Why are these cities being denounced? It's because despite seeing most of his miracles, they did not repent. This display of divine power should have moved the people, broken them, shown them their sins, led them to repentance. That's the right response. You know, Peter had that response. In Luke chapter 5, the disciples were fishing all night long and caught nothing. But the Lord then visits them and he directs them to a miraculous catch. Just throw the net on the other side of the boat. Like we, We've been fishing all night long. We're not going to throw the net on the other side of the boat. But they do it and they haul up so many fish, the nets are breaking. Peter knows this was a miracle. This was God's hand. How does Peter respond just when he sees the fish? Luke 5, 8. It says, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And that is the right response. It's to recognize this God is real. He's righteous. We are unworthy before him. Who can stand in his presence? Our God is a consuming fire. He's fiercely holy, <clears throat> but he is also love. That's why this Jesus came, to offer mercy to sinners who would repent. But the people of Capernaum, like most of the Jews, if they ever felt that conviction, they silenced it, either behind criticism or here unrepentance. They refused it. They would not fall down before Jesus in a repentant faith. They continued on their own way, the way of judgment. This is the wrong response of unrepentance. What does repentance even mean? Word metanoeo, a change of mind that necessarily leads to a change of course. Now, true faith in salvation must begin with repentance. This is why John and Jesus both preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Biblical Christianity teaches that salvation is by faith alone, not by works. It's not about doing enough good things or being good enough, performing enough to earn God's favor or his forgiveness. No, it's just about availing yourself of Christ's finished work on the cross and receiving 
the gift of forgiveness and new life he offers. You do that by faith, and faith is is the anti-work. What is faith but the recognition that you are not good enough? You are a sinner. You you are unworthy. God is just. You're going to stand before a perfectly holy, righteous, creator God, and your condemnation will be just. You deserve it. You own it. And what hope do you have? What, What can you do to repay him? Nothing. Your only hope then is just to throw yourself on the horns of the Lord's altar and just plead for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Just plead for a new heart. Plead for the gift of forgiveness. And here's the the glory is that the Lord promises to always hear and answer such a humble cry. But here's the thing with this passage. Can that be done without repentance? Without recognizing first your sin problem, mourning over it and forsaking it and running to Jesus. Can you come before the Lord saying, Lord, save me from judgment. I'm a sinner. Now, I don't plan on changing. In fact, I really, I love my sin. I hope to keep it. But I would appreciate not going to hell. So, yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you think he will hear that cry, that prayer? That is effectively what many people do as they go to Jesus for forgiveness with their fingers crossed behind their back. But look, you can't walk in two directions at once. Similarly, you can't pursue sin and Jesus at the same time. You can't have two masters. Who's it going to be, self or the Lord? If Jesus, it requires a wholesale forsaking of sin and self, that, that's repentance. And as believers, we, we follow the Lord as often as we stumble off of his way. We, we, we all stumble in many ways, but the believer will continually repent, get back on the way of the Lord. But these Jews, and many like them today, they just never repent. And what about you? Have you repented, turned from your way? Look, there is bad news. There's a serious warning in Christ's words this morning that if you, even now, turn away from him, harden your heart, and refuse to repent, there's nothing left for you but judgment. Heed that warning. As we've learned, all people are accountable to the light they have received. So those living in the world, they're not off the hook. As Romans 1 attests, all are without excuse because that which is known about God is evident within them. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Like that, that wrath comes for all the unrepentant who suppress the truth. But you need to know this warning is not just for you know, those atheists and those, those total unbelievers. There's an even greater warning here for those who frequent church pews, but they, they've never yielded their heart to the Lord. How many people come close to Christ, maybe even give assent to him, but they're phonies. They've heard thousands of sermons. They nod along, but the Lord does not run their life. He does not rule their life. They do. They, they, they straddle their way and the Lord's way. Most of the time there's overlap because they like cultural Christianity. Sometimes the Lord's way just sharply diverges from their way, and, and you've got a dilemma. And the Bible says, I don't have any grounds to divorce my spouse, but I really want to. The Lord says, I have to forgive my friend who sins against me, but I, I don't feel like it. Scripture says, drunkenness is a serious sin to God, but I like to feel good. 
Like you see, it's, it's time like these, you, you find out real fast who's the real Lord of your life, you or Christ. But be not deceived. It's often those who claim to be religious who are the most hard-hearted. It happened with the Jews. It happens today with many so-called Christians. Don't turn away conviction. Be warned. Examine self. Humble yourself. Repent. We're not talking here about being sinless. None of us are. Even as believers who follow this Christ, we, we stumble in so many ways. But the difference is the true Christian still repents daily. We come to him for his mercy, cleansing, and renewal. Look, I know our time in the Word this morning has, has been heavy, serious, and what can we say? This, this teaching comes from the Lord himself. He thought, we needed to hear this. It sounds harsh, but I hope you even see here the good news hidden in the word of warning. If all this is true, if Christ and his gospel are true, that means this word of warning is true, but it also means his, his offer of salvation is true. The fact that you're being warned is itself a mercy. His offer of forgiveness and restoration is true. And do you know what that means? It means despite all your sinfulness, all that you've ever done, even your ongoing unbelief or hypocrisy, rebellion, whatever it is, you can still be saved and a believer can still be restored. It means all you have to do is just repent and believe. Jesus did the great work by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He, he did the work. That's what enables the good news. But I hope you see even in this message of warning, the love of God held out to you, that you have the opportunity. The door is open for you to go to him today. You just have to wave the white flag. You lay down your arms. You, you, you end your rebellion against this God. You stop guarding your sin. You declare war on it. You might still wrestle with it, but he will give you power to do so. We would be remiss if we didn't include what Jesus says just a few verses later. Look down at verse 28. Right after this, he adds, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, that lightens the tone a little bit. But the offer of salvation, it's still being held out. You need to understand, like Paul says in Romans, and behold, the kindness and the severity of God. Just like he says in Romans 2.5, listen, if you persist in your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, that's just what we just preached, right? I'll read it again, Romans 2.5. If you persist in your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's true. But what's also true is the verse before that, Romans 2.4, which says, repent, and it says, do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. This means that Jesus, this, this Jesus, he is both the judge of sinners and the friend of sinners at the same time. But don't turn away from God's kindness held out to you, even this morning, in hearing the way. Just repent, believe, follow Christ, and you will find in him a friend of sinners. Let's go to him in prayer right now.
Our Heavenly Father, we, we bow before you humbly, and I pray and I trust, and I hope all of us here acknowledging we are sinners. We, we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way like, like sheep. We're lost. This is why in your love, you sent this Christ, who is not a drunkard, a glutton, a sinner. He really was a friend of sinners. We thank you for sending this Savior to, to live the life we could not have lived, a perfect, sinless life of righteousness. Yet being the holy and innocent one, he still climbed that cross and suffered there your wrath, which was for us. He drank the cup that was due us. He, he bore the strokes that should have been for us. That the wrath that would be ours forever in hell, he, he swallowed. This is your love for us. How could we ever judge or criticize the love of God? We see it in Christ and his gospel. And paying the price, finishing the payment, rising from the dead is the Savior who, in mercy, while the day still today calls out to all who are hungry, come to him and, and hunger never again as the bread of life and the living water. He satisfies those who go to him. I pray you convict all of us here this morning and, and especially those who don't know him, who have not bowed that knee and followed him to, to give up their rebellion. It's not a work we can do. You must open their eyes and, and, and soften hardened hearts. We pray you do that even now, that you would cause some to repent and, and run to Christ. They will find that the joy, the peace, the forgiveness, the newness they've been longing for, the hope of glory. And for us who have, Lord, keep us humble over our sins. We, we're not better than anyone else. We are like those sinners and tax collectors, unworthy before you, but we have been saved by grace and made new. May we still be convicted, daily repent, and just follow Christ because we love him. What our Savior did for us, we give our lives on the altar now to, to worship him, to serve him. He's worthy of it all. We pray he would be glorified in us each and every day. It's in this Christ's name we pray. Amen.